This morning we're going to consider living soberly and our Bible passage is 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through to 16. I'm sure I'm not alone in loving the doctrine of the apostles and we've had plenty of doctrine to consider in the Apostle Peter's introduction to his first epistle. However, born-again Christians are people who don't just love doctrine, they don't just study doctrine, they live it. Just look back at verse 2 of chapter 1, where it is written, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. If that's you, someone who has been chosen by God for salvation, you are indwelt by God, the Holy Spirit, who works in you to will and to do of God's good pleasure, and you have a conscience that has been sprinkled and purged with the blood of Jesus Christ, your Saviour, who is the incarnate Son of God, then your day-to-day life will inevitably bear testimony to all those benefits in verse 2, and to that we say, to God be the glory. With all that in mind, now that the Apostle has finished with his doctrine-rich introduction, we are going to start looking at exhortations from him. Mind you, even as I say that, I'm well aware that there is plenty more doctrine to come in this letter, some of which I'm still looking to God the Holy Spirit to enlighten me on. Coming to our passage, it is written in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through to 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which have called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. First of all, we see that you are to gird up the loins of your mind. Ordinarily, girding up the loins refers to hitching up robes, such as the Orientals apparently used to do when they drew up their long, loose robes and they belted them around the waist when they moved at a fast and purposeful pace. Even now, if you go to India, you'll see men wearing lungis, which are long pieces of cloth coming down to their feet and secured around their waists. Lungis can be hitched up above the knees, presumably for the same reason. However, the Apostle Peter was using that term as a figure of speech. In view of having been chosen by God, for salvation blessings through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
you, dear Christian, are to gird up the loins of your mind. To understand that, we could think back to what we considered not so long ago in Philippians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, where the Apostle Paul said, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. Paul was describing the Christian walk in terms of pressing towards the mark, like an athlete leaning and stretching forwards as he keeps his eyes on the finish line and on the prize, on the Lord Jesus Christ. I like what Spurgeon said about girding up the loins of your mind. He said, These are days of great looseness. Everywhere I see great laxity of doctrinal belief and gross carelessness in religious practice. Christian people are doing today what their forefathers would have loathed. Multitudes of professors are but very little different from worldlings. Men's religion seems to hang loosely about them, as if it did not fit them. The wonder is that it does not drop off from them. Men are so little braced up as to conscientious conviction and vigorous resolve that they easily go to pieces if assailed by error or temptation. The teaching necessary for today is this. Gird up the loins of your mind. Brace yourselves up. Pull yourselves together. Be firm, compact, consistent, determined. What Spurgeon said about 150 years ago is so relevant for today. Every one of you who professes faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is making a huge statement. You are saying that you are a priest of the Most High God and that God is your Heavenly Father. As such, it does not befit you as a child of God if you have an attitude of mind whereby you are ambling along or drifting along with a leisurely stroll in your Christian pilgrimage, or you are being tossed to and fro by every new wind of doctrine, or instead of taking up your cross, denying yourself and following Jesus, you are instead forsaking the right way, going astray and following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. It's fair to say that there is often a lot of frivolity in the visible church and in individual Christians, even though the Apostle Peter said, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. What does it mean to be sober? I guess the most obvious meaning that we all know is to not get drunk. But more broadly, to be sober means to be spiritually alert. For example, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 through to 9, the Apostle Paul said, 
Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet the hope of salvation. For God have not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. In that statement, Paul was talking about spiritual matters, about spiritual light, about spiritual darkness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and Christians are people who see and follow that light. They do not walk in darkness, and they have the light of life. Whereas those who are not trusting in Jesus are people who love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds are evil. The Apostle Paul warned the Christians in Ephesus not to walk in the way of unbelievers when he said, Ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. If you are a follower of Jesus, then with the enabling power and grace of the indwelling Spirit of Christ, you are to be careful to do that which is pleasing to God, and you are to remain free from the intoxicating effects of the world, of Satan, and of your own sinful desires. Last of all, in verse 13, the Apostle Peter explained to what end you should gird up the loins of your mind and be sober or be spiritually alert when he said, and hope to the end, or hope perfectly, for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you think about hope, it looks to a desired outcome in the future, and it's something that we are all familiar with. For example, you might hope to do well in your school exams, and the ground for that hope is all the hard work and the revision that you are now doing, which means that you are trusting in your hard work for a desired outcome, that is, passing your exams with flying colours. And when you take a journey, you're trusting in your car or the aeroplane or whatever it is that you are travelling in to get you there. Therefore, connected with hope, is the substance of that hope, or the ground on which that hope stands. For example, if when you jump out of an aeroplane and your hope of landing safely is dependent upon you 
flapping your arms, then you have a hope that is anchored in sand. Whereas if you are trusting in a parachute, that's different. But even then, something might just go wrong. As for the hope in verse 13, it is a hope that looks ahead to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Clearly, Peter was not referring to past events such as the virgin birth of Jesus or his resurrection from the dead when he was seen by Peter, then by the twelve and then by more than 500 of the brethren at the same time. The apostle was not looking back in time. He was looking ahead to the second coming of Jesus when he shall come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. That kind of hope is absolutely certain, and that is because it is built on Jesus himself, the one who came full of grace and truth into this world. As the hymn writer rightly said, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The revelation of Jesus Christ or his second coming is a certain hope that you can hang your hat on and you can anchor yourself to when you consider how clearly it is taught in God's word of truth. For example, one of my favourite verses for fanning that particular flame of hope in my heart is Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 where it is written, looking for that blessed hope of the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Before we move on, can you see that if you really are someone who has a certain hope of the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming again with power and great glory to take you to be with him, then you have no business whatsoever ambling along in the ways of this wicked world. Rather, clothed in the whole armour of God, you are to gird up the loins of your mind as you press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And note, you are to do so by the grace of God. It is the same grace of God that saves you from your sins, it is the same grace of God that preserves you and that will take you home to glory. Following on from living soberly or being spiritually alert and spiritually minded, Peter said in verse 14, As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, the bit about being children is easy to understand. 
all Christians praise God for the fact that by his grace they are his children, having received the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin and having believed on his name. So the children bit is easy, but the obedience bit might not be quite so easy to understand. After all, Christians are under grace and they are not under the law. Verse 14 is not talking about you establishing your own righteousness through obedience to God's law. Far from it. There are billions of people in the world who are trying to do precisely that. And whatever hope they have of meeting with God's approval and of securing everlasting life is built on sand because there is no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But the good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to all who are trusting in him. Christians are people who are obedient. They are obedient to the gospel of Christ. As such, they are people who are, who have shown repentance towards God. They have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They have a heavenly inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, which they shall receive when Jesus shall come again. They are people who, for whom the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience, has been credited to their account. Putting it negatively, listen to what the Apostle Paul said concerning what will happen at the revelation of Jesus Christ to all who are disobedient to the gospel of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 through to 9, Paul said, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We'll look again at verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. If by the grace of God you are obedient to the gospel of Christ and you are looking for the glorious appearing of your great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, having trusted in him as a repentant sinner, then you are not fashioning yourself according to the former lusts in your ignorance. In other words, you are not living under the dominion of sin in your ignorance because of the hardness of your unregenerate heart as you once did. If you are a new creature in Christ, old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. No longer are you conformed to this wicked world. Instead, 
you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind, all the selfish and sinful things that contradict the word of God and that you once subscribed to and loved to do, you now hate and eschew. With God's enabling grace, you now avoid them. You now seek to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and it is your heart's desire to live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. And that brings us to verses 15 and 16, where it is written, But as he which have called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. To be holy means to be separated from sin and to be consecrated to God. If you are a Christian, God who chose you before the foundation of the world has called you with a holy calling. As a child of God, your position before God is one of holiness in his beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also there is an ongoing and progressive work of sanctification within you by the Holy Spirit, whereby he is making you more and more holy, more and more set apart for use by God as you prayerfully read the scriptures and you earnestly seek God's grace to live a born-again life for his glory. It does require a determined effort on your part to increase in holiness. As the theologian Don Carson said, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. Therefore, you prayerfully strive for greater levels of holiness, never forgetting that Jesus is your holiness. You'll note in verses 15 and 16 that you, dear Christian, are not being politely requested to be holy. Holy is what you are, or at least what you ought to be. Finally, I'll finish with a few questions. What kind of life are you now living? Are you drifting through life, serving and feeding your own sinful and selfish desires? Or else, are you spiritually alert, walking in the Spirit, denying ungodliness and following Jesus in holiness, having repented of your unholy 
and lustful ways and having been washed in his precious blood and clothed with his righteousness. Amen.